Hello and welcome to Girls That Invest. Today we are joined by a very special guest, one from all the way around the world in New York. We are blessed with the presence of Vivian Touche. If you have not heard of her, you are absolutely lying. She is <laughs> everywhere her name is your rich bff online vivian is not your typical rich bff though she is a first generation asian american she has battled oceans of can we say overwhelming misogyny in the financial space oceans is appropriate i would say yeah it's not a pond no at least like the pacific at a minimum a sea at a minimum a sea thank you she's dealt with a lot and she's taken that and turned it into I would say an entire empire of helping people around the world get really good with money, aspiring them to think larger, to create just different value sets around money. You've been a Forbes 30 under 30. You've been recently announced as a Forbes creator. Last week you were speaking at the conference. How did you find that? You know, it was honestly really exciting. It's certainly not something that little Vivian ever thought would like I would get to do. I actually went on right after Kendall Jenner. I like to tell people, I'm like, oh, well, Kendall opened for me. So that's nice. Do you even work after that? Like after something like after Kendall Jenner opening for you, you're kind of like, I've, I've done it. I'm good. You know, you would think that, but I just have so much more stuff that I want to get done, so many more goals I want to accomplish. And I think there's a laundry list of activities that I've still got ready and, you know, in the chamber. See, this is how I know you're like here for the people and you're here because you want to help and you're here because you want people to get better with money because you don't have to be doing this anymore. Like after having Kendall Jenner open for you, like that's it. <laughs> We're like spreading that rumor like so hard. Now, before we get into this week's episode, we want to thank our season sponsor, Rentap, the ultimate tool for renters who won't let rent day ruin their vibe. Rentap rescues you from the rent paying chaos. No more ancient ATMs, no more check mailing, no more juggling multiple apps. With Rentap, it's hassle-free, straightforward, and guess what? There are no hidden fees or pesky weekly limits. But Rentap isn't just about paying rent. It's your ticket to a brighter financial future too. There's even an option to report rent payments to boost your credit score, making home ownership more achievable. That's a huge money win. For our GTI listeners, we've got an exclusive deal. Using our referral link in the episode description, you get $50 cash back on your first rent payment. Don't wait for rent day dread. Download rent.app on the App Store and follow at rentapp on Instagram and Twitter. Check out the referral link in the description and make rent a breeze. Vivian, I am so excited to talk to you today about the abundance mindset, the idea behind it. It is a bit of a woo-woo term. And mm. the first time I heard about, you know, abundance, I was like, mm, you know, is this just encouraging me to spend more money and live in a way that's kind of silly, but you've been able to talk about it a lot on your channel. Yeah. You have millions of followers across TikTok, Instagram, you've got your YouTube channel and abundance mindset seems to be a common theme. Do you mind just taking a second to explain why it's so important in today's world, especially as someone that's a person of color? Yeah. To put simply, I feel like an abundance mindset is just the concept of like, there's more where that came from. Yeah. And you and I share something in common. We are both, you know, first-gen immigrant daughters. And I think when you grow up in an environment 
where your parents feel very other and they come over, you know, my, my parents love to say that they came over to the U.S. with $20. $20. Same, oh. yours. <laughs> they, they walked uphill both ways, you know, had their lunch boxes were like pails. I'm like, come on, like, give me a break. But I think they did suffer a lot. And whether that be suffering through working really long hours and not being able to see their kids or, you know, true suffering in that, like, they were discriminated against for not being able to speak the language or communicate as eloquently and people thinking that they were stupid because they knew how to speak two languages instead of one. You know, I think that creates a lot of scar tissue mm -hmm. for people like you and me. And certainly I'm sure a lot of the girls that invest listeners and that can lead to something called scarcity mindset. Basically you feel like you need to hold on to every little thing, every little penny, every little just nickel you have because you will never have that opportunity again. And that leads to very unhealthy and sometimes dangerous thinking. And I mean that both metaphorically and literally in that, you know, you might be driving a car that is not safe to drive when you could certainly afford to just buy a more modest, reasonable, safe car. On a metaphorical side, it's like sticking around in a job that you're not getting paid enough at that you're not being treated respectfully at because you feel like, oh, what if the next job I get is even worse? Mm. Or what if I get a, a great job and then two weeks later I get laid off? What happens then? And this type of thinking prevents you from really being open to accept huge opportunities that could help you improve the station of your life for both you and your family and your loved ones. So having an abundance mindset is almost that TikTok trend of like lucky girl energy mm -hmm. of like, if I do the right things, I live my life in a respectful, good way where I'm not hurting others, where I'm treating myself with dignity, where I value myself, I know my worth, I'm working hard, good things will happen to me. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to fear that it's all or nothing good things will continue to happen to me. And to prepare for that, I should have sugar and water ready when the lemons fall from the sky so I can actually make lemonade. And having an abundance mindset is just really being open to those good things happening and being ready to strike and take advantage of them to better your situation. It sounds like you've really nailed it for yourself. Was this something you always had growing up? Because I'm trying, I'm struggling to understand how like you – you know, came from a certain background similar to mine and you've been able to move away from the scarcity. Yeah. Has that been something like, were you like six years old and you were like, I'm going to have my sugar and water ready? Or was this a journey that you've taken? So it's definitely a journey. My parents are super duper frugal. I mm -hmm. mean, wash Ziploc bags. Like, I don't know about you, but like in your kitchen, is there a bag filled with other bags? Of course. Yeah, of course. Do you think we're going to go and buy trash bags? Like, why would I do that? Like, I have perfectly good bags. It's going out the door. Right. So yes, you know, my, my parents are really frugal. And the biggest fight I ever got into with my mom and dad was, I think it was like either eighth grade or freshman year high school, I went to the mall with one of my good girlfriends and we each bought a pair of ripped jeans from, I want to say it was like Abercrombie and Fitch. And for those of us who don't know the cult of Abercrombie and Fitch, if you were a teenager and you had ripped jeans from A&F, you were a cool girl. 
You made it. You'd made it. I wanted to be a cool girl so bad. And you became a rich girl instead. I, I Yeah, exactly. I came home with this bag and I had the jeans and the receipt in the bag. And my mom saw the receipt and she flipped out at me over a pair of ripped jeans. She didn't understand why I would want, first off, buy jeans with holes in them already, which by the way, like, I love ripped jeans. Like, I'm wearing them. them again today. <laughs> but she and I got into a really big fight because she said to me, she's like, you don't understand the value of a dollar. Your dad and I worked so hard. And of course, at this time, it's 08, 09. My parents have just lost half of their net worth, mm-hmm. half of the money that they'd been saving for me to go to college. The economy was in turmoil. The housing crisis was in the midst of what we were living through. I obviously did not fully comprehend that. And I'm out here buying $80 ripped jeans. Oh, $80 back then was a lot. A lot of money. I know. I know. They probably weren't even 80. They were probably less than that. But still, my my mom was not happy about it. And she yelled at me and I ran back up to my room and I slammed the door and I made a decision that day that I was like, money is never going to be a limiting factor for me. I want to be rich AF. I want to never, ever feel like I have to be sad over money ever again. And that was something that kind of like stuck with me through the rest of my like teen years. I was a really great student in high school, mostly because I had to be. If I came home with a B, I would be like in trouble. I go to the University of Chicago. It's very much a Wall Street feeder school. My junior year, I interview. I get the internship. After the internship, I get the full-time offer. And I go to work on Wall Street. And that's where I meet my mentor. And I credit so much of my success to her. Because for the first time, it wasn't someone telling me I needed to wash my Ziploc bags. It was someone being like, you should be investing. You need to put your money to work. You can't work forever. And you don't want that. Mm -hmm. And at first, I wanted to be like her for such shallow reasons because she was dressed to the nines every day. Like the Chanel bag, the Gucci shoes. She always had like a Missoni dress. I was like, damn, she's so cool. I want to be her. I want to be her when I grow up. And- then it became a situation where she was like, are you like contributing to your 401k? And I was like, what is that? And she was like, are you using, you know, the company corporate catalog for hotels to save money? And I was like, what is that? And she gave me this education that I didn't get from what is the top three school in the country. You know, you would hope that you would be getting any sort of education there. Like I got a great education, but I didn't get this education. Mm-hmm. And she taught that to me. And I feel really fortunate. And that's part of why Your Rich BFF exists is like, I want to be that person for everybody else who doesn't get to have a genie in their life. It's so interesting that you mention that because oftentimes we find that unless you have someone in your life yeah. that can be your older sister yeah. or your mentor and say to you, hey, listen, this is how you get good with money. This is how you change your mindset. We didn't get access to that. And the fact that you're opening that up to millions of people every single day is amazing. And it makes me wonder, like, how many people's lives would change if they were able to get all of this information condensed down in a simple format, something that you could just, you know, get through in in a couple of days and it just changes your life. Sort of moving into the book, do you feel like that was the reason you wanted to have that exist? Like something, like all the mentorship that you've learned in something that just everyday person could have access to? Yeah. So my content that I create all over social media, on my podcast, you know, on the YouTube channel for long form, like it's great, but it's only a section of the story. And I kept getting asked, oh, can you put something like more holistic, like steps one through 10? Can you put together something that I can just 
look at at once. Yeah. And I was like, how am I going to do that in a way that's accessible, in a way that's easy, in a way that anybody can, you know, have? And I think people were just egging me on in the DMs to be like, write a book, write a book, write a book. So I wrote a book. And I feel so proud because this is the book that I needed when I was 22. And what does that mean for a 22-year-old Viv? What did she need? I was making nearly six figures living paycheck to paycheck Really, in New York City. I split a studio with another girl. We didn't have a wall. So like when we sat up, we were like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, like the grandparents, like just like looking at each other. You were like, good like, morning. Yeah, literally it was like morning, except for the fact that she was a banker and I was a trader. So we were like two ships passing in the night. Like I only saw her like unconscious while I was leaving for work and she would see me unconscious when she was coming home from work. You um, didn't need walls then. <laughs> we didn't need walls. No, but I didn't know what to do with my money. Mm-hmm. And I was so confused why I was working 70 to 80 hours a week and it still felt like I was just barely making ends meet. And I never saw a reality in which I could have that life that I was kind of promised if I went and took this type of job. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of people that have grown up in similar ways, whether it's immigrant parents or people of color or just someone that's had the parents with maybe the fear of, I want my kids to do well, we will get taught a very similar line, which is study really hard at school, mm-hmm. get a good job, yeah, go to a good university to get the good job, and you're sorted for the rest of your life. So it sounds like you followed that path. You you did the good girl thing, but you felt like you didn't get what you were promised. I mean, so many people our age feel that way, don't you think? Like, Our parents' generation, they did good in school. They went to a good university. They would then be able to graduate. They would either go to a university or a trade school. They would then be able to graduate and get a trade job or a corporate job. They would be able to support an entire family on one income. They would get that, you know, golden retriever, two and a half kids, white picket fence house with a tire swing out front, you know, wisteria lane dream. And they would go on two vacations a year. They had a great life. Whereas our generation did the same thing. Mm-hmm. We tried to be good students. We you know, either got a trade job or we went to university and we left with so much crippling student debt because the cost of education had 10X since our parents' generation. Mm-hmm. Then we come into the corporate world where wages have stagnated. They haven't grown at the same pace as the cost of living. Housing is now three to 10X depending on where you live. So you can't afford a home. For a while, cars were even almost unaffordable, people were basically sucked into this rat race after being promised, if you did the right things, you would have a good life. And it felt like that was just a lie. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who were in the boomer Gen X generation looking down at us being like, why don't you just work harder? It's like, are you joking? Well, you know, we were having breakfast today and you did have an avocado on toast. (laughs) Oh God, I'm going to get roasted now. Like the fact that people are like, your, you know, $18 avocado toast is the reason you can't buy a house is insane. Mm -hmm. The average cost of a home right now in the U.S. is about $400,000. Do you know how many avocado toasts you would have to forego to get a down payment on that? Like like thousands and thousands of avocado toasts. And the thing is, the average house price is not going down. It's not. Like back in normal economics, textbook economics – You have two, basically, levers, housing prices and the cost of borrowing. 
when housing prices are high, typically interest rates are lower. So the cost of borrowing money to buy those more expensive houses is lower. So it's like, okay, you're like, you can, I can make this work. I can make this math work. Or alternatively, when interest rates were really high and borrowing money was really expensive, housing prices would fall because there would be less demand of the buying. And again, you can make that math work. Right now, housing prices are high and the cost of borrowing is high. Nobody can afford anything. Everybody is in chaos. Like, listen, I get why so many people in the Gen Z millennial cohort are like, it's doomsday. Like, I get that. Mm -hmm. I really do. And I think it's really frustrating, especially when you get a good job to feel like, oh, I'm promised this certain life. And again, you're living paycheck to paycheck in a lot of major cities. It's really interesting that like you mentioned the word doomsday because it does start to feel like yeah. it. And you know, you log on to social media, which is why I love so much of what you do and how it is so social media first, because you get all this negative stuff and you see things where you're like, how can I afford a home? I had a friend and she was like, if I had $10,000, I would have a child, but I cannot afford to have a child. And $10,000 is the difference between if I can give them a good life or not, you know, for their first year at least. Which and which is so messed up because the first thing I, that went through my head was $10,000 is not enough. Right. <laughs> well, that's what I thought too. But you know what? We're, we're, not, we're not here to, to judge. But I find that it's really interesting that, you know, we talk about manifestation. We talk about being good with money. We talk about abundance. If someone's listening, mainly me, I'm, I'm here <laughs> and I'm hearing you. I really struggle with the abundance mindset. Like I yeah. have had my wealth change over time. The Girls Invest listeners have kind of followed that journey, but I still really struggle to treat myself. Mm -hmm. And I still really struggle with the fear of the money in my bank account might disappear tomorrow. Yeah, And it comes from a weird way of growing up where you just get taught or you believe that this will not always be around. Yeah. This nice thing can be taken from you in any second. Yeah. For those people that are listening, because I know we have a lot of followers that feel this way, what are your tips around moving past the limited mindsets? Yeah. I'll say if you grow up the way we grew up, there's going to be a little bit of that scar tissue that never goes away. Yeah. Like I'm always going to bulk. We talked about this. When I go and get a matcha and after, you know, I tip and the tax, and I, it, my matcha ends up being like 970. Like I balk every time I'm like 970, like, what do I look like? I'm made out of money. And in the grand scheme of things, $9.70 does not make any sort of financial impact on me. I could get one every single day if I wanted to. I'm still going to balk at that price. Yeah. And I think in some situations, that's good. Yeah. Because it keeps you grounded in that you enjoy spending money, but you don't enjoy wasting it. And there are certain things you ascribe value and that are worth it and certain things that you don't and you can skip more often than not. But I will say I had the same problem. I wore the same clothes on Wall Street for like pretty much the entirety of my career on Wall Street. I wore these one same pair of Ann Taylor pants that like I had just run through ragged to the point where like one day, like a hole just started forming on the side. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I have to actually like run out to a store and like change pants because they're like like coming apart at the seams. I mean, that's a flex. You'll just be like, my booty's so big. My <laughs> it can't be held in these pants. <laughs> the bubble butt cannot be contained, <laughs> which is so hilarious because I have like a, what I call a scallion pancake butt. It's just like a wall. But, you know, I think it's understanding that you are deserving of good things. 
And one way that I personally tried to move past this scarcity is starting sinking funds for stuff. So I recently saw that you acquired a beautiful Cartier bracelet. I did. We love. Thank you. I got the thin one. But still very beautiful. I think if that's something that you prioritize, that's something you value, that's something that's going to help you feel like, oh, I've hit a milestone. I deserve a little treat. Great. Start saving for it now. Set aside $10 every week. When you get to that number, do not feel shy about going to the store, ideally overseas so you can get a VAT refund. You know, still be mindful of how you're spending. Pay as little as humanly possible for what you want to get the highest quality thing. But really being intentional and purposeful with your spending makes you feel so much better about it. Because I joke about this in my book, nothing ever felt as good as my first bag. Ah. Nothing. Because the first bag was blood, sweat, tears, money. And I saved up for it week by week, paycheck by paycheck. And the second bag I bought, I had it like that. I just walked into the store one day in Soho and bought it. And I was like, oh, sick. And I walked out and I was like, okay, great. I had buyer's remorse. I didn't feel that way for a second with the first bag. What bag was it? It's a black leather Prada Safiano executive tote. It's red, smooth leather on the inside, black pebbled leather on the outside, Chef's kiss. And you still have it? Still have it. It has two separate pockets, one for my laptop, one for my random miscellaneous goods. And they even have a secret pocket for my tampons. I love that. And second bag. Second bag was a beige crossbody from YSL. It's not that I don't like the bag. It's that I bought it without doing a lot of research. I bought it thinking I would wear it all the time and I don't. It's interesting the two ways you describe the bags. Like the first one, you were like, it was like as if you had two children and one was your favorite. You were like, she went to this school, she studied this, she got these grades. Second one, it's not that I don't like her. But (laughs) I couldn't even tell you like what the name of the bag, like I could tell you the exact leather of the very first bag. I know every intricate stitch because I paid for it. Yeah. And it Stitch by stitch. Stitch by stitch, I paid for that bag. Second bag, I had a lot more money. Yeah. And I thought buying this bag was going to be like, it was going to feel as good as the first one. It didn't. That's really interesting. Yeah. Do you think that comes down to the sort of, you know, we grow up and we expect that we will act or feel a certain way when we reach certain financial goals? Has that changed for you over time? You know, I thought when I became a millionaire, I would throw a party and it would be the most amazing thing in the world. I did. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that number came and went. And I think the way I value my life, my career, my aspirations for the future are so different now. They're less tied to a dollar figure and more about how I feel and what I want to do and my time. And I think as I've gotten out of the paycheck to paycheck, the rat race, the, you know, whatever it might be, I value convenience and time over money in many cases. And I think that's okay. That's another one I want to talk about. Valuing convenience and time over money. That's not very um, Asian of us. It is. In the way that we. But it isn't. Please explain. Okay. So I used to be the person who would like refuse to do delivery. Yes. I would always order on whatever app and then I would go pick it up from the restaurant. Exactly the same. And I started thinking about the time that it would take me to do that. Right. So in some cases, like I would walk 
like 10, 15, you know, it, you got to put on the shoes, you got to get your keys, you got to put on the whatever. Got to find the keys. Got to find the keys. Like it, it would be 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. That thir- that's 30 minutes of my time. And when I had less money and I was in my early 20s, I was single, I had truly nothing going on. And I was kind of like literally <laughs> nothing going on, just dates. But you were just working on Wall Street, just like. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I had more time and less money. More time and less money. Yeah. I was willing to do that because I valued money more than time. Yes. Now, I run a full-blown business. I have a partner that I just want to hang out with and snuggle with on the couch. I have, you know, TV shows that I'm trying to watch. I have work that I could always be catching up on. That 30 minutes, going and walking to get it, costs me more than just the fee that I would have to pay on DoorDash. And for me, that opportunity cost is a fair trade. Because, think about it this way, you can either walk to go get it and walk, come back, or during that 30 minutes, I can bang out one more video. Yeah. And that video in my business is money. Or I can go take a workout class and I can feel really good about my body and my wellness. Or I can just hang out with my boo for 30 minutes. We get to watch an episode of some trash TV that I'm forcing him to watch with me. He secretly loves it. He secretly loves it. Love Island, Australia is amazing. Sorry, I know you're a Kiwi. Uh, <laughs> it's okay, I forgive you. You know what I don't forgive you for? <laughs> Earlier today, we were having brunch and I was saying to Vivian, this is a very, I just need to get this out. I said to her, you know, I Australian accents, they're so different to mine, they're a bit jarring. And in a complete shock to my system, <laughs> Vivian repeats my accent and goes, that sounds Australian. <laughs> <laughs> but you do a good, you do a good Kiwi accent. You do a good Kiwi accent. Oh my God. I feel like I'm listening to my, I feel like I'm listening to the recording when I'm editing. <laughs> Sorry. Going back to yeah. more important things, Love Island, Australia. You'd but rather watch that. I derive more value out of that than the eight extra dollars that I have to spend. I see what you're saying and I see that I need to get there. Yeah. What I struggle with in that, and, and this is why I'm so glad to have you on because I know a lot of us are in that place. A lot of us are in that tension between, okay, we've started to invest and we've started to get better with money. And it's so embarrassing that it's a mindset thing. Like you can learn how to be good with money, but unless you learn how to spend it, you're just never actually going to reach that next level. And it's hard. It is hard. I think sitting down with yourself and understanding what you value is probably the first step. Mm-hmm. So I love to, you know, use the value-based spending equation. So which is, I call it like, is it worth it equation? You take that pad thai you just ordered, call it 30 bucks. If you take home $20 an hour, it's not $30 pad thai. Mm-hmm. It's an hour and a half of work pad thai. How do you feel about swapping an hour and a half of work for that food? Pretty good yeah. for me. I love spending money on food. Yeah. Spending money on vacation, love it. For me, spending money on social obligations, I don't even want to be at, negative one out of 10. Zero out of 10, do not recommend, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Like, I hate it. Spending money on full price clothing, zero out of 10. It's not for me. Like, I love nice things. I love buying luxury goods. I love buying high-end brands. I'm not paying full price for them. And how do you go about doing that? You know, I think it's being really smart is 
shopping at places that offer designer goods at a discount, like a Marshall's or a TJ Maxx. It's going to sample sales. It's buying luxury goods overseas where I know I can get a value added tax refund. It's being mindful of how I'm spending, spending with intention, spending with purpose. I can still look great without breaking the bank. Mm -hmm. And there is less value in paying full price for retail or things like that than there is for me being like, you know what? I'd rather spend this money on a trip for me and my boo. I want to circle back to the lucky girl syndrome Mm -hmm. that you were talking about earlier. How does that play into money? Yeah. I think it's just knowing yourself and knowing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So if you know for a fact you are the top performer on your team, you are out hustling everybody you sit next to, You should not be shy about asking for a 15% raise every single damn year because you deserve it. You have earned it. And if you stay at a company and they don't give you a raise every two years, up or out, baby, go find another job that's going to pay you and treat you right. It's knowing that if this person does not treat me right or this corporation does not treat me right, there's somebody out there that will. I think we need to normalize the way do we we say to our friends, you know, that guy is not treating you right. You need to let go of him. We need to do that for our friends' jobs. Mm-hmm. Friends' jobs, but also like friends' banks. Like, oh, this is the third late fee you've been charged in three months. Like maybe you should find a checking account that doesn't charge you a minimum balance fee. Like mm-hmm. you should not be mistreated in any aspect of your life because odds are good. We live in a free society. Like there's obviously going to be somebody else, something else, some company else that will treat you the way you deserve. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. We, so we've talked about mindset. We've talked about growing up. We've talked about the changes that we've made over the years. I got a little bit of a free therapy session out of some of the conversation. <laughs> now let's talk about the book. Yeah. How was it writing it? You know, writing the book was a lot easier than I thought, because I told you about this at breakfast when we were chatting, I actually have a 300-page single-space Word document of every single YouTube script, short-form video script, podcast outline, any work that I've ever done, I have it all saved. So I actually did a lot of copy and pasting and just really, really fleshing out the details. So instead of a 60-second video, it could be you know, a, a section in a chapter. Mm-hmm. And I felt really fortunate because I had done a lot of the hard work. Mm -hmm. I didn't start from a blank page for me. I I already had stuff I could cut from. And cutting is a lot easier than writing. But I'm so, so excited. I mean, this has been a labor of love. Mm -hmm. Like, thank you so much for – you and I talked about this before I started the writing process. I was so overwhelmed. I was scared. Oh, that's right. This this time last year, you were just about to look into it. You guys, I took Sim to – a matcha place in New York. It was the first time she had ever had matcha and she told me it tasted like green dirt water. I didn't tell that to you. I said this is lovely. You told me this today. Yes. (laughs) But at the time, I was like, thank you so much for introducing me to matcha. This is fantastic. This is fantastic. (laughs) Completely lied to my face. But apparently, after adding honey, she likes it now. So... Yeah, I was like, you know, finally matcha, everyone's talking about it, like seems to really like it. It was like a local and it was horrifically bad. (laughs) And I was like, I paid like $7 for this. But I lo- and now I have a matcha every day. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for- Introducing you to the cool girl drink. It's just bitter because now I don't jitter. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make you shit. It's like a clean energy. It's like smoother. And it's not as like crazy as some coffees. And I feel like Kourtney Kardashian every time I have it. Like oh I'm my t- God. 
Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's okay. Yeah. That is okay. We're allowed to do that. Back to the book. I really wanted to, to understand what you found the most exciting part to write. Like, it's not often where you get a person with your background, with your views, with your experience to write a full blown book. And I'm sure you took that responsibility quite heavily because it's not easy. How was that for you? You are really hyping me up and talking me up like I'm this incredible, serious economist. Like my favorite part of the book was just like all the parts where I could like, you know, take the piss out on my on myself. Is that how I say it? Like, yeah, take the piss. Yeah. Like telling all of the embarrassing stories where I did something stupid that, you know, the BFFs could then read and be like, oh, she did that. I'm not going to make that mistake because that was dumb. And like being able to tell all of these really fun stories, like, I, you know, I, I think this about all of the personal finance books out there. Like we are not teaching new information. Mm -hmm. The only improvement or betterment and the reason why these books are of value are the way we are presenting this information. We are making it digestible. We are making it accessible. We are making it relatable. Mm -hmm. And I think the funnest part of writing the book was telling all of these stories that I'm like, I bet somebody reading this has done something similar and when they hear my story, they're going to feel less bad about that thing they did. And they are going to realize that Vivian is not special. Vivian is not smarter than me. Vivian is not more talented or better or stronger, faster, anything. She's a regular person who got this education. And now that I can have this education, I can have all of these things too. And I want people to feel like they can be better than me. If you start earlier, if you are able to do more, because I actually didn't start until like I was a full-blown, you know, adult a couple years into my career. Mm -hmm. So I really do think that like this book is a love letter almost to all of the BFFs, to anybody reading it, to be like, listen, you're not dumb. You're not behind. Get started today. Look at all the mistakes I've made and I turned out okay. You're going to be even better than me. That is a beautiful way to describe it. I have to ask – do you have one of those embarrassing stories you can tell us? Oh, yes. Oh, so many. So I told you that I met my now fiance through my first girl roommate in New York City. Mm -hmm. We lived in our studio together, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Our beds were foot to foot. We just stood up and like, you know, sat up and looked at each other. Yeah. And we lived together in this studio, just one big room, well, for the first year together. And we said, okay, let's move into our second apartment together. But like this time, maybe let's each get a bedroom. That'd be like sick. Imagine if we had walls. Imagine if we have, like we have doors. That'd be amazing. So we move from Hell's Kitchen in New York City, which is roughly where we are right now. And we go down to like the Soho-y area. And you could not tell me I was not the coolest girl in New York City. I was like, I own it. I own the city. I am the king. Like... I'm cool. I live downtown. I live in a walk-up, everything. I have walls now. I have walls now. Nothing can like, stop me. This apartment is super small, but it's beautiful. It's wonderful. The very first weekend we were in this apartment, I was actually in Chicago for alumni weekend. And my roommate was there by herself. And she sends me this ominous text while I'm in Chicago. And she's like, hey, when you get back to like New York, like we need to like have a talk. And I'm like, are we good? Like, are you mad at me? Because obviously like immediate millennial guilt. And she's like, no, 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 it's nothing like that. Just like, I think we really should talk. And I'm like, 
okay, like you've ruined my weekend, but thank you. I come back to New York and she sits me down and she's like, okay, so I don't want to like freak you out. But the very first night that I was home alone, I was, you know, scrolling, doom scrolling on my phone before bed, which we shouldn't be doing, but we all do. And she was like, it was around midnight and I put my phone down and I went to the bathroom to go to the bathroom before going to bed. When I flicked on the lights, I saw a thousand little things scurry away. Is this a horror story podcast? Yeah, this is literally a horror story. We didn't recognize this when we moved in, but the building was part remodeled units for yuppies like myself. She and I were paying in total $4,000 a month on rent. That's still a lot of rent. I know. And other units in that building were rent stabilized units from basically like back in the 70s. And the rent stabilized units, they had like concrete floors, like no wood flooring, no linoleum, like nothing. Like it was just like concrete floors with like one single light bulb. There was just like exposed cement walls and like water and like it was just harboring a cockroach infestation. But because even the fancy units that were remodeled with, you know, the new appliances, they shared piping with those rent stabilized units. It was a horrible infestation of cockroaches and they were crawling all of our stuff. One died in our ice tray, which was really awesome to see a crystallized cockroach in my ice. One died in one of my dressers. So I found it in my clothes. So I obviously was like, oh, "Oh, great. This is, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. Like we were smacking these things left and right with our flip-flops. And like, it was just like the most horrible experience. And we did everything we could to try and get out of this apartment. But at the end of the day, we didn't have the time or the money to fight this in small claims court. So we paid $8,000 to break our lease. $4,000 her, $4,000 me. $8,000? It's two months to break your lease. Yes. I thought, in my head, I thought you said 800 I was like, I'd pay that. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Eight, three zeros. Three zeros. Eight, zero, zero, zero. $8,000 to break our lease. And for me, someone who did not have any sort of family help, like in terms of paying my rent or my adult life in New York City, like that wiped out my first year's bonus. That wiped out every dollar I had saved for the first year of work. And I looked at that moment and I was like, I have now worked for 365 days and I am no better off than when I moved here. And I wanted to cry because I was like, it felt like I had just run in place for a full year. It's just like the power of having financial freedom, like nothing compares to it. Yeah, it was crazy. And I was like, thank God I had that savings to get me out of that position. Otherwise, I would have had to ask my parents to help me. And, you know, I feel really fortunate to even have parents that I could ask that question to. I certainly had way too much pride to be doing that. But, Mm -hmm. like, at least I had that true backup backup. But I blew all of my savings. And that's when I was like, we need to tighten the belt. I need to build that emergency fund back up. And I need to start making more money because I can't live like this. I I am one more financial emergency away from having to like really call in for reinforcements. And that was really scary. I can see that playing such a huge part in your journey to being like, I don't want anyone else to be living with cockroaches by their bedside. Like I want people to read this book and I want them to have the choice to leave and not, oh, I have goosebumps. Financial stability, financial freedom isn't important for sake of having the money It's important because it allows you decision-making, it allows you optionality, and it allows you to buy your freedom from any situation that doesn't serve you, whether that be as silly as 
a cockroach-infested apartment, you know, in Soho, all the way to a terrible job where your manager, you know, not only doesn't respect you, but, like, maybe harassing you from – it helps you get away from a partner if you are in a, you know, domestically violent situation. Like, these are really serious scenarios. And in the grand scheme of things – that girl and I look back on this moment, we're like, oh, that was so horrible. Like, we laugh about it now with in jest, but like, thank goodness we had the money to get out of that situation. And I don't want anyone to ever feel like they have to keep living in a dangerous environment. Yeah, that is horrible. I, I can only commend you for the, I think it's like a public service that you do <laughs> to like help us all get better with money, to help share such personal stories. And I'm so excited for the book. I was lucky enough to get a little sneak peek of sneak the peek, sneak peek. international edition. And it's so nice that you're doing editions where no matter where in the world you live, it's going to be so applicable. And I'm just so excited if we are listening in and we're like, I need this book. I never want to be in a cockroach invested place in my entire <laughs> life. Where can we find it? You can go to the URL richaf.me because I wanted the URL to be a manifestation, right? Richaf, mm-hmm. you. Uh, so richaf.me and you can find the domestic US Canada as well as the international edition that serves other English speaking nations. And I'm so excited for you guys to read it, to get your hands on it. And I really hope that you are able to pick it up and go from page one to the very last page and feel better, more confident, and more capable in your own financial lives. Vivian, thank you so much for coming on the show. It means the absolute world to us. I'm sure the investee besties are going to lap this book up. And we just really appreciate your time for coming on here and sharing all your wisdom. Of course. Thank you so, so much for having me. All right. Until next time. Bye. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence. Alrighty, till next time team. Bye.